Welcome back to the Growth Innovators Podcast. 5G is a new intelligent fabric that will trigger a wholesale reconfiguration of services, products, and decision-making in our economy. While Verizon and others in its space are at the forefront of ushering in this new intelligent fabric, 5G is going to radically introduce new economics and models for a wide range of companies from higher education to healthcare and everything in between. In this conversation, Manifold Advisory Partner John Sfiokla chats with Toby Redshaw, the SVP of Enterprise Innovation and 5G Solutions of Verizon. And they talk about new technologies and innovation from some of the most successful and established firms like Motorola, American Express, Verizon. And you'll hear Toby's insights on the future of 5G, as well as his insights on being a corporate renegade and trailblazer and how to make change happen inside of an organization. It's a great conversation. I think you get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to John and Toby. Hey, good morning, good afternoon. This is John Spiokla. It's lovely to have you here. I'm here with my friend Toby Redshaw, and we're going to uh, get into our second Growth Innovators speaker series. So we've had the maiden voyage, and now we're on the we're on the second voyage. I guess we're like John Glenn in terms of if you remember your space history. Anyway, and today we're going to cover tips from a corporate renegade. That renegade would be Toby. For those of you who know Tobes, he is a force of nature as uh, once was said of Orson Welles, great people are like planets. They take their atmospheres with them. And Toby, I would say, is one of those people. And it's just great to have you all here. Let me take you through what our agenda is going to be. And this is the two of us, of course. And then it goes through these intros. I'm going to make an announcement. We have a fantastic new announcement. Uh, what used to be Digital Intent is now Manifold, the Manifold Group. I love our new branding and so forth. And I'll take you through uh, briefly what I'm excited about. Then we're going to have two big hunks to this thing, you know, 5G and why you should care and then change management models. Because if you care about 5G and you think it's got implications and you're trying to change a large organization, you know, uh, doing it the old fashioned way is not going to work. And then uh, I'm going to give you a quick thing about the rest of the story, questions, and then I will uh, give you an idea what our next series is going to be because we're doing this on the last Friday at lunch Eastern every month now is our growth speakers series. So let me just tell you uh, where we're going to end up, which is that 5G is allowing intelligence uh, at the edges of the network and at the edges of reality. And that is going to radically change how you do business, where you can do business and where value is added. In order to make that happen inside large organizations, you're going to have to think as much around commercial activity as politics. And Toby is just the person to tell. So let me go ahead for you. Toby's anything to add there before we head in? I left telling the no, no. And that sounds good out here. That sounds great. That sounds dead on target. Awesome. So uh, DI Digital Intent is now manifold. Little trifold knot there. Being the nerd that I am, that's actually mathematically can't be untied without being cut apart. The reason that's relevant for our brand, I, I also love the way it looks, and it's eminently clickable, which I think all brands nowadays should be clickable and actually do something when you click them. The, uh, the reason that's relevant is that uh, there's three hunks to growth. There's, you know, how you think about things, analysis and so forth. There's uh, money that you can put to work. And then there's uh, building stuff. And that's really what Manifold is. It's all three of those things together, advisory, ventures, and studios. There are few, very few instances where the three of those come together, combination of uh, entrepreneurs and um, experienced practitioners along with some, some staff. And uh, anyway... As you can see, we really think that these are the three critical structural levers for growth. I'm really excited about this new brand and how we're doing it and uh, more to come on that. You know, uh, I mentioned here, operators, deep experience, better value, 
here's some of the folks that we've worked with, you know, everybody from Ticketmaster to BBVA to KPMG to Shell, Carnegie Mellon, the, the Bulls, which is kind of fun. Okay. The series has an underlying core, and that core is the idea that the world is getting more and more computable. And this actually started in uh, 1938 when Church and Turing, Alan uh, Turing and Alonzo Church separately came up with the idea of a symbol machine, a Turing machine. And the idea is that a symbol description that could run itself. And that was kind of the big bang of a Turing reality, if you will. The reason that's important is that you're seeing it happen now. Self-driving car, what happened with a self-driving car? We increased the level of digitization of the job to be done when they put the LIDAR on top and spun it around. And they if you multiply that times the level of knowledge, that is the physics of how a car drives, which was pretty well known, that that made the driving environment computable, which meant you had a self-driving car. Uh, similar things are happening. We're going to have some illustrations in terms of 3D uh, surgical planning. Surgical planning didn't used to be computable. Now it's computable. So this is a through line. And then in terms of the levels of knowledge, you can think of it as categorization, correlation, causation, and increasing levels of knowledge. Gee, it's green. Gee, the green goes with the red. Gee, the green causes the red as different levels of knowledge. And when you have a high level of knowledge times high digitization equals computable, you radically can change the economics of any business. And if you're computing something and somebody else isn't, or somebody else is computing something and you're not, you're really in trouble. So that, that through line and 5G is a big shot in the arm for that. Uh, first, just before I head into this and going to have Toby start to tell us about 5G, I just want to give you a little bit of background about Toby. He is one of the most interesting characters I know for a number of reasons. He has a phenomenal personality, but in addition, his breadth of understanding from the arts to science and from organizations to, to projects, there's just, I've never met a person with a broader purview of practical, theoretical, and political and economic. And so that's why he's been able to get some of the things done that he's been able to get done. He has worked for a number of large companies, you know, FedEx. I met him when he was at Motorola, American Express, who's CIO there, Aviva, which is a massive UK insurance company. And now he is at Verizon and he's also done work on his own. He's done some ventures and so forth. He, and he's also in the middle of a a conversation uh, with a group down at Lake Nona, which is 150 square miles of a brand new city that's only 10 to 15 minutes away from Orlando Airport. And they're building a community from the ground up, kind of doing what Walt Disney wanted to do with Celebration, but better. And so, and in addition, he's got some fantastic stories. And he grew up in Mexico City. He had two sets of parents. It, it's just, it, it never ends in terms of the insight and fun. So with that... I give you Toby Redshaw. Toby, good morning. Good afternoon. Hey, I'm glad, glad to be here. Let me just start at a really, a really high level, and then uh, we can drill into the uh, the metaverse stuff in a, in, a, in a minute as a as an example. So I'm I'm super excited about now, right? I've been in technology and innovation and change, you know, for for decades, and it is the most intensive time from a business change wave meets technology change waves ever, right? Everybody in B2B is trying to become B2B to C. You know, that's been been a train coming for 20 years. People who are in uh, make big honking things want to sell those as managed services. That's been coming our way. That's starting to 
to really uh, grow and get mass. Sales is turning into experience. It has longitudinal experience attached to that. Digital snackable commerce is starting to enter into all of those things. The the underlying structure of the dark web is going to make the next three or four years of hacking the worst we've ever seen. It'll make the last 10 years look like kindergarten. And then you've got the fourth industrial revolution and uh, the technology change waves of 5G coming from the other side. So it is the biggest time for creative destruction in my lifetime, right? And the the folks out in Davos at the World Economic Forum referred to this as the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution is a very, very simple thing. Their, Their viewpoint is no matter what you think about cloud and AR, VR and IoT and AI and big data and how much those have progressed in the last 10 years, which is which is a lot. Their view is, look, over the next five years, there is a quantum shift in those four technologies that's going to drive a, a thing we call the fourth industrial revolution, which remember the last three changed the world. So that's a really, really big statement. The big difference with the fourth industrial revolution is it's not going to take, you know, four or five decades. It's going to take six years. So that's coming, coming now. Layer on top of that, it's the easiest time in the world, in, in world history to get a bunch of capital to form and start a company, but also to scale it, including the hard bits of scaling, scaling your manufacturing, scaling your supply chain. You can almost rent all of those pieces. Go to a company like Prologis for the supply chain, Alibaba for manufacturing or 12 others. So as those four technologies, hockey stick, whether that's in terms of impact or value per unit dollar or pervasiveness, this trend, right? This is the, this is the 10 years looking back from today. And we all get that these have grown. So it seems kind of strange to say these are going to hockey stick after that much growth. But trust me, I'm close to, I'm close to all of those technologies. The next the next five years looks like this, this, this hockey stick. Now imagine all of these things could live on a new network that's super fast, can manage gigantic, huge files and bandwidth, has a really, really low latency, which is how quickly do you get back to the network, do your processing and get back to the uh, endpoint. Is a thousand X better for IoT density 10x better for IoT battery life, which changes the economics of IoT. And it's not just a network, but has compute built in at the edge. So now you have a supercomputer in your back pocket. Man, that'd create this crazy flywheel effect and new new platforms and new approaches. The thing I just said is literally the logic behind the fourth industrial revolution. The other thing I just said is I just described what a 5G network is. So it's the combination of those four technologies on a flywheel of the new uh, network that that's basically going to change the world like the last three industrial uh, revolutions. So let me demystify 5G really quickly, and then we can get into the, uh, get into the pragmatic meat of this. So 5G is really two things, right? It's a network, but why is it different than, than 4G? Well, in these dimensions of what things do in the network, right? How you can communicate with things that are moving really, really fast. How energy efficient is it? How many connected devices can it connect to? How quickly do you do service deployment? Reliable and then latency, which is techno gobbledygook for how quickly you get a response, right? I can 
take a dumb camera, look at something in a in an environment, bring back the pixels to the edge, do the processing to get intelligence from that. Well, that person's never been here before. That's a security problem or that's a new customer or that's a defect on the factory floor. I can do that whole cycle in 30 milliseconds, right? That is one tenth of a blink of an eye. That's a really big difference, but this is really only half the story for for 5G. The other half is because it's a software-defined cloud-native network, which is techno-gobbledygook, it really means the edge of the network becomes compute. So it does all of these crazy, cool, big, fast, rapid response things. It comes with built-in compute at the edge of the network. So now you can do things in real time intelligently in ways you could never do that, uh, do that before. And here's the big breakthrough thought, right? The real world functions in real time, right? Getting a whisper in your ear inside a FedEx hub, hey, stop, there's a tug coming, you're going to get run over. Getting that 30 seconds after you've been run over, not, not super useful, right? The whole real time intelligence, the pervasiveness is going to change a lot of things. If we, I, I'm not sure what the next slide is, but I think to this. yeah, we jump to this. I'll I'll give you, uh, I'll give you one uh, example. Are we going to run this video? Yes. There we go. So this is the ability to take information that we've already got, right? CT, MRI scans, and to be able to project those in real time on top of the the patient to be able to drill down rather than just having printed out in slices and black and white on the wall, it's to add this intelligence. Now, what do you need to do this? You need compute at the edge, you need crazy good uh, bandwidth, and you need immediate response. These bright folks, two medical professionals working out of a closet in our 5G lab uh, in New York, built this amazing, this amazing thing, and it just ups the quality while reducing the cycle time of surgery, right? Which hospital and get more surgeries done. I love that economically. Ups the 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 quality of it, which is you know what you care about, what you care about more, eliminating rework in the process, becoming more precise as you do this. Again, that's bandwidth and compute at the edge and that uh, that that latency. Yeah. So cool. tell me our our mutual friend, Dr. Larry Smar, um, you know, in terms of the surgical planning, I think, I mean, a massive amount of time is spent doing surgical planning. But the other thing is there's so much, I think, at least I didn't appreciate how much variety there is in the human body so that, you know, not everybody's, you know, the wadenum is in the same place or, you know, their liver and how it lies and what's, you know, what its shape is. And so much of surgery is going in and finding out where things are. And I remember you're saying about brain surgery, it's the same thing. I know in plastic surgery, which I know so about, I'm talking about reconstructive plastics, not, not cosmetic. The surgical planning would take a ton of time. The way they would do it would be with plaster models and measurements of the heads of the, of the children and then x-rays. And then the beautiful thing about this is not only could they do surgical planning because when they're in the middle of an operation, everything's swollen. So they don't know where they are in XYZ space anymore. And, you know, if you're, if the replacement of an eye is off by two millimeters, that's a big deal, you know? And the other beautiful thing is when you have these kinds of models, you can do synthetic growth because the way that surgical interventions were planned in reconstructive plastics was you operate on a bunch of kids and you watch them grow. 
you know, does it work? Doesn't work? And the, the here you can actually synthetically do it. And they discovered many things that have to do with facial growth and other things just by doing this kind of work. The icing on that cake is that because this is digital, because you can run patterns against it, because you can do analysis against it, and you can look across an entire sea of cases, whether it's stroke therapy or brain surgery or the Whipple procedure, which is how you go in and get the duodenum if it's gone bad, which, oh, by the way, is a 15-hour operation. You can get better just by an having machines analyze this. Uh, there's some wonderful stuff going on at, uh, at Johnson & Johnson in this area where you can get the data and the metadata and you can say, hey, John, when you do this surgery, you take five and a half hours. So you take seven. Let's show you the differences and how you how you get better. Or let me immerse you into this environment as a student and let you walk through this. Or let me just have the machine look at patterns of success and what do we discover? So I think that that's the intelligence. So this is this is one platform, right? This is AR, uh, XR, VR stuff. The other two big things that Compute at the Edge and Fantastic Clever Networks will allow you to do is to put your artificial intelligent models right at the edge and run those in real time. And then the other part of that is the ability to take dumb cameras, a capture pixels, $50 camera, and then do the basic compute at the edge to do intelligence, right? To find vibrations in equipment before they break, heat maps. Uh, where are your customers? What are they doing? Security elements, find defects in circuit boards, manage Here's a really important one. Manage the crowd flows to the shortest beer line at a stadium. Anything that you can think of where you can give me photons, I can turn that into intelligence. So what do those three platforms really do? Why should we care, right? Pervasive AI at the edge, the super cool AR, VR stuff, and then the, the other important stuff we were talking about on all of those, all of those examples with cognitive, cognitive video. So what that does is really two things. The folks that adopt this Mm -hmm. Their operations become proactive and predictive and pattern matched and preventative and permissioned and peer connected and precise because I'm now using these things in my operations that lowers my operational cost structure and it reduces the defects. Same thing that's happening with this surgery. I then use that same technology with the engagement with my customers. It improves the customer lifecycle value. It makes me more proactive and, per, and permissioned. I'm, I'm precise with my customers. So if you think about business, that's all business really is. As long as you get your strategy right, right? No amount of good technology will save you from a bad strategy. There's nothing you could do about that. That is, is, is self-determining. But if you, if you have a good strategy and you implement these platforms and you get the, the seven Ps, Business A, better operational cost structure, fewer def defects, that adds into the customer value proposition. You use it on the customer side, better customer value. I mean, I wasn't the smartest kid at business school, but that is your business, right? And I've already got companies, even risk committees on boards, pinging me going, we're really worried that if the enemy gets there before we do, we can't win that. We can't win that battle. So that's the pragmatic side. And these three platforms that I talked about are the beginning. There will be other platforms. Yep. One, one comment on this, the, I get a lot of pushback on the AR side. Okay, so that's okay for surgery, but you'll never see AR, VR stuff adopted uh, broadly. I have uh, 
uh, one word for that, and it's uh, Pokemon Go, although it's a compound word. Not very useful, not very hard technology, definitely not useful for the enterprise. 50 million users in 19 days. Now imagine I had intelligent AR that was designed for you on your job to help you get something done. I know, by the way, your boss told you you had to use it, but it was truly useful, personalized and intelligent. What's the adoption curve on that, right? I, I don't think, you know, three years from now, anybody will do surgery without that sort of stuff that you just, just saw. So incredible change moment, a lot of creative destruction. What people forget in creative destruction cycles is it includes the word destruction. You don't want to be on that end of that deal. No, it's, uh, it's uh, one of the comments from Mike in the comment field here is from Mike Boyle. And he was saying that they're investing in a company that does a 3D print of the organ that's going to be operated on so that the, so that the folks, the surgeons can practice on a physical version of your, whichever organ they're operating on before they get in there. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, really a, that's Mike. Uh, I think Mike owes me money from the last golf game we had. I wouldn't be surprised. The, the, <laughs> we have a question about, okay, if you have computing at the edge, we get at the security issues, right? Okay, if we have computing at the edge of the network, why is there a concern about hardware manufacturers being a potential national adversary? Is it very important to have hardware produced at highly trusted companies? So three things embedded in there. At a high level, you absolutely should be concerned about this. The underlying structures in the dark web, it's the most Darwinian, positively Darwinian place I know where they evolve faster than anybody else, mostly because they can just steal the tech. They don't have to buy it, right? So, and they've gone to an asset light model. They're super AI intensive. They are focused not on splashy hacks, on harvesting money and keeping that secret. Not a fair fight. You want to be the hardened target, not the soft target that they go after. Seriously, the next five years of this stuff, is going to make the last 10 years look like kindergarten. Second part of that, that comment is as compute moves to the edge, the target, uh, and as you know, more and more devices get out there and IOT grows exponentially, the target space for hacking just got way, way bigger, right? Think of how many bank robbers there were when there were 400 banks in America, and then how many there were when there were 40,000 banks, right? Maybe go back to the the explosion of banks in the, uh, when the regulation changed back in the 20s or 19, 1910. So the target space has grown. Really good for security to have your compute at the edge so it's not flying back and forth across the network. That helps. But what gets, uh, what, what gets lost in the security space is securing your, your non-IT, you know, your operational technology endpoints, right? There's a very famous hack where somebody came in through the HVAC system and some clever person had put it on the whole network. So they made it to the point of sale. So they stole a bunch of credit cards, right? So the, mm -hmm. the security job gets, gets harder. And again, security is an architectural problem, right? If you don't get the architecture right, I don't care how thick your walls are, right? It's, or how many layers you have. It's a, you've got to get the security architecture correct. Yeah, it's, uh, as you say, the, the threat space gets so huge. One of the questions I had for you, Topes, is, when you get out in the marketplace, you know, how do people think about this? You know, how prepared are they? And as we get into that, I'd like to go to our first polling question, which is how prepared do you think your organization is for 5G? I'm asking the Iranians here. So while folks are entering that, the, Toby, the, what do you think the role of different organizations, research labs, you know, partners, suppliers, and so forth are in doing, 
innovation in this domain? So, I, look, I, I think at a national level, I, I was very privileged to sit on the Council of Competitiveness and run the, the um, co-run the work stream for scale disruptive technologies with just a bunch of certified smart people, especially from the national labs. The national labs are are a national treasure. The, the work that goes on there, the level uh, of intelligence and smarts and innovation, we need to find a way to do better public-private partnerships with that and with the university base, drive that into IP, drive that into a positive change. I think it's a national, uh, I think it's a national treasure. And I think people are starting to work on that. And I think, and also some of the, you know, the, the DOD uh, end of it's really, some of the smartest people I know are in, in D and DOD and the innovators at the VA, uh, for example. So I do think there's a big opportunity to do more there, especially if you care about, you know, global competitiveness, which we kind of really should. Yeah. 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 In that domain, what's your sense of the, you know, the Western world, U.S. and your Western developed world, U.S., the EU and so forth, you know, compared to the uh, Asian countries, especially China? I, I think two things. And and I know this, this might give me a bit of trouble, but, but don't care. It's not a fair fight at the moment. China takes a 20 year horizon on things. China will put massive investment without political debate into things they think are important, like the fusion program that they put, you know, tens of billions of dollars into. Their rollout of 5G is mm-hmm. enormous. And they do a really good job of leveraging an educational meritocracy and funneling those folks into there. Now, there are some very negative parts of China when you look from human rights, social justice, and inequity parts, especially when you start to look at what's going on in, in Northwestern uh, China and, and Lord knows don't want that system over here. But, but what it does mean is that we should look at that and react pragmatically. I don't think they have competitive advantages that we cannot overcome. When I look at the, the innovation fabric that we have in America for just focusing in on America, there's no way we should lose that, that competitive fight. We've got to fix the talent supply chain. We've got to fix, sort of up-level some of the, uh, the educational things, leverage national labs better. But, I, but I, I am very optimistic that, you know, impending competitive failure will force us to go do that, right? Yes. Well, yeah, it's interesting. The, our poll came back and it turns out that uh, the majority of folks by far said they were not prepared. Three said they were somewhat prepared and one said not at all, you know, so it's uh, only one felt that they were prepared for what's coming up 5G out of our audience. So, you know, in the order of five, 10% of our audience at least feels like, you know, they're on top of this. Mike, it, this is not true about lots of technology, but it's true about some of the big change, big pivotal stuff like 5G and the platforms that go go with it. It's a practical thing. It's not a theoretical thing, right? So it's like rugby or cooking in a commercial, cooking in a commercial kitchen. You can't just walk on the field one day and go, all right, I've read up on this. I've got a couple of papers. I understand it conceptually. I'm going to go do it. Mm-hmm. Your competitors have been playing with this 5G stuff for a couple of years. They've been out on the pitch getting the bumps and the bruises and getting the learning. That's a competitive advantage over you because they have started to think differently and, and use these new platforms and new tools. So 
while it is still early days in 5G, the best companies that I know of, the ones that are really lining up for the next war that aren't staffed for the last war are saying, okay, get my hands on these new tools and weapons. Let's learn. Let's get that, that experience out on the pitch, on the field, so that we, we, are, uh, we are better. So in terms of the, some of the implications in this and so forth and some of those learnings, you know, these are a set of examples that you, know, you had given us in terms of things. Do you want to speak to any of these in terms of whether it is in production or some of those experimentations? Yeah, so, so these are all uh, real discussions, real alpha, uh, you know, moving out of the lab into the real world efforts. But th these are some more descriptions of what those little platforms do out in the real world, right? Because this is not, you know, I've got a photonic quantum computer in China that can solve math problems that are so arcane, nobody cares about, it, has no application to, uh, to reality. These are, I'm going to go change my, my business. And when you de-techify all of this and have a conversation with somebody on the factory floor or at, you know, big uh, logistics companies or in the retail space, there's this click of, oh, well, that's, that's what I care about. My operational cost structure, taking out defects, better engagement uh, with customers, fixing latent profit pools. If you look at, if you look at healthcare or education or the food business or, or, or construction from a supply chain, old school supply chain throughput perspective, mm -hmm. there are gigantic profit pools there. If only you could have AI in real time at the edge and be supported by clever AR, XR uh, things and manage IoT a little better and turn cameras into proactive, precise, preventative tools. Man, that would really work. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're, uh, what we're talking about. And people want these because it's, it's a financial, financial impact. But the other interesting thing though, that, that I would, I would add here is companies seem to split into two really big camps for me on this. Uh, mm -hmm. And one is, you know, I'm, I'm successful. I've got this great army. We've been winning this is great or, you know, not so great, but on some range of we're in it, right? Uh, we've got a great army lined up for the war. And then the other ones that are, yeah, look, the war is changing. The type of battle we're going to be having is going to be different very, very soon. I'm converting my army for the next war. And I think it's the next war winners that are going to leave behind. There's lots of cycles of really clever companies that were lined up for the last war uh, and and actually military history is full of these too sure that didn't make that transition but it, it's a really psychologically leadership thing that that'll that is difficult when i when i first came to verizon the chairman said the ceo chairman said the things that made us successful in the past will doom us in the future not we have to pivot five degrees or but all of those great things that we give people medals for and awards and that that will doom us in the future, right? And I and I think that is such a smart and gutsy thing to say out loud. Really, really hard to do. So, Toby, I know that in surgical planning, that's a very tangible thing that you guys are experimenting with. And I know there are a number of efforts. What are you? What are some of the other exciting ones that you can talk about? I know that you're doing some amazing stuff at the intersection of entertainment and education. I don't know how much of that you can speak to. Yeah, so immersive, there's a, 
there's an acronym I like because I invented it, uh, immersive participative audience engagement. If I can put you in an immersive environment that lights up your whole brain and it's participative, your brain wants to be connected to other people, right? You don't want to be in a dark cave by yourself. So if I can be in this environment with a few other people, this digital environment, and I can explore and I can go on a journey and it can follow me and be intelligent for me. And it knows how to engage an audience, right? It, it knows what storytelling is. It knows how what my learning patterns are. It knows how to reinforce things, knows how, uh, how memory works. That is a game-changing platform. And some of the smartest people out of Hollywood are moving into areas like this. Dreamscape is a one example of that. The early data on very rudimentary 360 video-based environments, which are nowhere near these, you know, gaming platform virtual environments that you can't tell aren't real, is that it's four times stickier from an educational perspective. That whether you're being trained to be a safe warehouse worker at the Defense Logistics Agency, or you're learning, you know, physics at MIT, or, or you're a special operations fighter doing repetition for dangerous mission, that the learning is four times stickier. And because this is a digital environment and I don't have to create all of the other constructs or fly people in, it's mm -hmm. probably three to four times cheaper. Now, I'm not. I'm not the best salesman on earth, but if it's four times better and four times cheaper, I can sell that, right? That's a 16X impact. And then back to that thing I talked about earlier that I call evolutionary intelligence, that I can take all the digital metadata off of this thing because it is digital and I can continually improve and analyze the metadata. I, I'll give you one example. We did a thing with Columbia Medical and we put stroke therapy into a VR environment I put, uh, uh, and we gamified it and we analyzed it. But the cool, the cool thing is we can watch really good therapists work with patients, look at the analysis across all of it and say, hey, you know what? Protocol two, stop using that in the first three weeks with patients. It does nothing. Start on week three. And for this cohort of patients where protocol seven and protocol eight are used together, there's a 45% uplift. I could take all the therapists in the world and put them in a room with whiteboards for a week and not see that, right? Because you're human and you don't see those patterns of that data. Living in a instrumented, digitized world lets you get on this continuous improvement path that's just otherwise not, not possible with some very basic uh, machine learning to go help you do that. So I, again, do you want to be the seven P's company? that's on this path or do you want to be the old one? Think about a, think about a hospital. Do you want to go to the hospital that's proactive, predictive, pattern mesh, peer connected, precise, and preventative? Or do you want to go to the old one? Yeah, I, you know, I want to go to the, the new one. Yeah, it, it, you remind me so about uh, the, uh, the law of accelerating returns that Kurzweil talked about back in 98. You know, that the idea that technology drives knowledge and knowledge drives technology and that, and also a uh, buddy of mine, Jim Cash said, Hey, the only sustainable competitive advantage is a superior management system. The only sustainable competitive advantage is a superior management system. And I think what you're saying is, hey, look, there's a learning and management system here. I mean, yes, the technology is super important, but it's really the learning and management system that allows you to beat the competition, 
Yeah. You know, in the military environment, you know, you'd be in, inside the OODA loop, was it observe, or, uh, orient, observe, observe, orient, aside, act. Do I remember yeah. that? Uh, yeah, it's small. So I think, I think you're dead on, right? I think one of the few sustainable competitive advantages in the future, now, I, again, strategy is hard and good strategy matters, is agility, right? If, if I am, if my cycle time, my OODA loop is better than yours, I win. You could be a chess grandmaster and I could be, look, just average Toby. And if I get to move three times for every one time you move, I don't care how good at chess you are, I win. I don't care if you invent something better than what I've got and I can respond faster and you can't keep up, I win. And that, that intelligent fabric inside your company. Love, love Jim. He taught me a key thing about change management. He said, um, sitting at a, a bar at an information week conference, he said, look, here's the key to change management. To do change management, sometimes you have to change management. Yeah, and that is a really difficult thing for companies, companies to do. When we change the culture at Motorola, sitting down with somebody who's been a top 5% performer for 10 years and saying, look, you can't work here anymore because we're not doing that old general patent command and control thing anymore. We're going to a matrix collaborative world and you suck at that. But I've been a top 10 performer for a decade. Yeah, but we're going to have to change management to do uh, to do change management. And most companies won't step up to that, uh, that change process. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other specific things that you've been working on from a lab perspective that, you know, you think people should be aware of, whether it's in manufacturing or retail or security or, you know, government? Uh, so I, I think the utility of having AI at the edge, and people get sort of confused about AI and big data, right? Oh, it's so hard. I need data scientists. Look, the, the AI you need to do for cancer genomics or to work on the data that comes off the fusion reactor at Lawrence Livermore or to win Jeopardy, that is really, really hard AI. You need some just crazy smart PhDs. Give me every bit of data at a FedEx hub or a hospital or giant stadium or a port or a Newark airport or the giant Fiat Chrysler factory in, uh, in Detroit. That from an AI math thing, that's just not a lot of data. And it's not really hard to find the preventative, proactive, surprising patterns and questions that you should be asking uh -huh. around that. So the real trick is this. Can I build a stack that is really, really easy to populate with data at the edge, yeah. runs that AI Lego for me, and then here's the really hard part, has a user interface that I can train an average person, non-technical person to use in 10 minutes? That's the trick, and, and we've built that, right? Um, now, it's the early days. We use it in our own network. We've got it in alpha with a few customers, but having easy, smart AI in real time at the edge is really going to start to really start to change things. I think it'll catch on, uh, catch on fast. Awesome. I'd like to turn to the second part of our talk here because, um, you know, I've known you for lots of years and, and there are some people who, you know, say the kind of thing, some of the things that you do, but it's really more innovation theater, if you will, you know, people really can't get it done. And, and it's almost like you're you're swashing the guilt of senior executives. It's like, oh yeah, we have an innovation group. They're doing all this stuff with the lab, or as opposed to truly transforming the organization. And I know that you have an even Motorola and MX really, you know, gotten things out of the lab and into practice. And 
you know, uh, we have our salmon here, right? Uh, the uh, going upstream. The, you know, so what are the kinds of things, Toby? Because the thing that thing that I noticed about you is that you have what I would call an institutional sensibility. I think a lot of people talk about innovation are at the, hey, this is a cool new product, this is a cool new service, you know, here's something new we can do, but they don't have it. They don't have respect for the for the singular fact that lar- the purpose of large organization, not the purpose, but the operating environment and the operating ethos and the and the the values of a large organization to a large extent are to stamp out variance, to make it predictable, to take the distribution and squish it down, right? And and that's been true since the beginning of industrialization, Fred Taylor and, you know, scientific management, the whole routine. And that is so baked in the in those organizations that and in a certain way, senior executives are paid to stamp out variance, if you will. I mean, they never never speak of it like that. But here you are at the salmon. I mean, that that river of conformity is really what people are paid for, and you're swimming up the other way. And that's an institutional yeah. problem, right? It's not it, it's kind of like it's it's not a personality thing. Look, panda bears love bamboo. That's that's not a statement about panda bears. That's just a fact. And large organizations hate variants. That's not, you know, that's not a good or bad thing about the organization. It's just like the panda, you know? And so how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. So I'd, I'd add a couple of things to that. I, I think it's also just, just being human, right? Very, very few people wake up in the morning and go, oh man, I hope I get a bunch of change today. Right. No, it's just, just not right. I'm good at what I'm doing. I figured out how to show up at the ops review and win every month. And I no, I've got this thing oiled. Right. Yeah. I, I also think that, that there's a, a culture problem with most companies. I think it's two problems. I think people get confused what culture is, right? Culture is this really complicated, difficult thing. It eats strategy for breakfast. I think that's just, what's the technical word? Bullshit, right? I, I think culture, let, let's take the culture of France, right? Super complicated, includes dance, theater, military history, food cuisine. It's a difficult thing. If we wanted to change the culture of France, even if we had the power to do it, it would take generations. The culture of a company is not the same thing. Nowhere near as complicated. There's no dance theater at General Motors. They don't have a cuisine, right? They don't have a military history. It the culture at a company is the sum of the behaviors and the behaviors is just driven by what do you reward people for? What do you punish people for? And how well do you do that? If you don't do that really well, and you're not really clear, your, your culture is sort of a bit of a mess, but it's definitely not a thing you wrote on your mission statement plaque. And it's not in your, in your credo. It's the, your sum of your behaviors. So if you think of that culture and all these people have been inside, there's a river of culture that they've got. And you have to be very, very aware of what that is because it's not a factual thing. It's a, it's a social thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to swim upstream against that culture, which you have to do occasionally for innovation, do it on purpose, not by accident, and bring some people along with the culture, do that. So the two things I think people miss in that is learn the vernacular of that culture, learn what the ar- artifacts are, learn what the reward and punishment systems are, and then try and do something within those that drives, drives change, which is, which is simply, a lot of that is give away the credit, make sure it's a big win, and go earn the, go earn the, the confidence. And one of the ways you start that out is 
you just bet your job, right? You say, look, I'll, you got to trust me on this one. Find the person that will, but I will bet you my job this works. Now, if the big thing you show up to and do, do first fails, you're an idiot. You just, you've lost, you're done. You're, you're, uh, you're out of there. B BPM, when we uh, brought that in and went big at Amex is an example, same at, same at Aviva. Business process. Yeah. And, and then you, you have to politely fight some of the cultural things, right? At Aviva, and I've seen this at many, many companies, people really got tortured for missing deadlines. And if you could show up and you were on the stoplight chart, you were green. All right, that's good. But we're focusing on the orange and the red, and we're going to beat the snot out of those guys because that's how we improve. No, what that really does is train people to pad deadlines and be really pl and play defense, right? So, so you, one of the first things I did there was found a really big project and, and gave it a impossible deadline and told the board, we're never going to hit that deadline ever. No human on earth could do it. But instead of being 18 months, they're going to get it done. We're going to tell them to do it 125 days. They want, they'll fail. They'll get it done in 140 or 150. And oh, by the way, look at that compared to the 18 months that you had listed before. And then here's the key part. We're going to go give all those people a, a medal for missing that deadline by 25 days because it's literally three times faster than the way it would have gone under the other thing. And then you start to change what people get rewarded for and what they get punished for. And that changes the behaviors. The sum of your behaviors at a company is your culture. It's not what you wrote on some plaque, right? Yeah. But what I think is interesting, Toby, and I've seen you do this a number of times, you really, you, first of all, you're willing to bet your job, which is a big ask of people doing innovation, right? When you come in and say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest something big enough that people are going to notice if I don't make it. A lot of people come in and they say, oh, we're going to do innovation. We'll create a portfolio. We'll have three horizons, right? We'll spend some money. We'll bring some people in and set up an organization. That's not coming in and promise, uh, figuring out what's big and important, promising something big and betting your job on it. That to me is how you have built institutional, right? Because that then gives you license. And I know you mentioned the Aviva case, you know, by name in the context of a project. I know in some other places you went in and you did things like, you know, put a sniffer on the network and found out you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of unknown equipment. Now, you wouldn't expect that from the innovation person, but you knew instinctively, well, from finding out and paying attention, that if you went in as the innovation guy and you went out and you found a couple hundred million dollars worth of waste in the technology infrastructure, that would give you the institutional credibility then to make some real changes. So at the first company I did that at, when that technology was just born, and I was very lucky to be on the advisory board of that startup when it was literally two guys and a whiteboard and me, I made a huge mistake, right? The guy that ran infrastructure said we had 9,000 Unix servers and we, we found 12,000, right? So I was like, ha ha, look, we're right. Look at this, 3,000. And this is when Unix servers were crazy expensive and actually big objects. So look, we've just saved this giant amount of money. We never have to buy one of these servers again for years. This is gonna be great. Super embarrassing to the guy that ran infrastructure. So friction, pullback. At the next company, I went to the head of infrastructure and said, look, this could be embarrassing, but how about we do this together? And when it's done, you go upstairs to your boss and go, ta-da, $100 million, right? And that just worked much, much better. The other thing that is key, that is just purely political, is in only 
big innovation jobs that I've had, you really need, you need two parts. You need somebody upstairs at the top who's with you, right? And, and has got your back. The, the CEO of Aviva literally wanted to change the whole company and was, uh, was up for that. The network of 5G labs that we built at Verizon, not everybody was initially on board with that, partly because the word labs is just a bad, bad word. And there's a lot of bad overhang with that. But the, the CEO said, you know what, Let the, let's go. They're not budgeted, but let's go do these. The second part of that is once you get that sort of pass and that permission to go do that, yeah. you have to go deliver, right? The, the pivot point for us on, on one of the pivot points for us on 5G Labs is the, the, the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world that begins with W that's in Arkansas spent an afternoon at the lab and went, holy cow, this was great. Thanks for that. I now get, I've got dirt under my fingernails on this 5G stuff. This is really important. Totally get it, right? So yet it's not enough to bet your job and get the right political thing. You actually really have to then go do something. And, and back to the salmon going up the river, you have to have a, pr a proof point that makes sense in the culture that you're that you're li living in, right? Something that, that returns investment. At, um, at Amex, the head of merchant stood up and said, hey, that new approach that we've got for building things, three times faster, three times cheaper. And it's the first time those IT monkeys built me something that I re was really what I wanted, right? And not, I have to revise that in version two and three and four and five and six. So, so it's, it's that whole um, proof in the pudding thing. Yes. Yeah, but at a scale. And, you know, I, I want to turn to something that you've brought up a number of times from our friend Tony Peone, actually. This change management model, I think, you know, that I know that you have used this in your thinking, but we have this notion from the research about, okay, what are the different ways you can do change? Edict, persuasion, participation, or intervention? Edict, persuasion, participation, intervention. So I'd like to do a little a poll here and ask folks, you know, what, which of these do you think is the, the most effective means of doing of doing organizational change. So if you can, if folks could just. So while they're doing that, a tiny vignette, I was super proud and sort of curious about being asked to join a, a three-day cloistered confab at Special Operations Command with Admiral McRaven and his direct reports. And I was like, you guys are the most innovative fighting force on earth. What nurse do you need this for? And he said something really wise that I kind of thought, well, I should have thought of that too. That's obvious. Uh, but really, really, he said, look, the enemy is continually getting more innovative. So if we're at the top of our game, we should, this is the time to go innovate. The, the CEO of Walmart carries in his wallet a little spreadsheet of the top 10 retailers uh, of the last five decades to remind him that people that were at the top of their game that had the impregnable fortress that were great are not only not on the top 10 list, some of them don't exist anymore. And then after that, they asked me to teach a class on a little lecture thing on um, how you create a culture of innovation across different cultures, right? Because if you think about Delta or Green Berets or Marine Force Recon or SEALs, they're crazy different cultures, right? Or Rangers. And I said, look, I'll only do that if you let me teach change management, because if you figure out where the destination is and you don't really know how these patterns work. And they said, yeah, and it was just a, a wonderful honor 
uh, to do that. And then the sequester kicked in and all external training got killed, but it, it, at least it was, uh, it's nice. And it's, uh, and it's kind of scary, uh, teaching a classroom full of people who've, who've been trained to kill you very easily. Right. So awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of which model is the most effective in our audience, the, the most popular answer was persuasion. And, you know, from Nutting's research, he had the same thing. What? Yeah. Yeah. Say, most people think it's about persuasion, which is sponsoring attempts to sell or change, you know, persuade people to do it. This is in terms of efficacy, right? Intervention. That is sponsor justifies the need for change, monitors implementation process, communicates progress, really pushes things forward. So this notion of intervention, not persuasion, and also the mismatch, right? I know you said a lot about this. And does this drive the kind of change that you've been doing? Yeah. So so if you I got to get a better way to explain this, but this is the only way I've got. If you put a gun to the head of the top 100 execs at most companies and say, what change management model do you use? You'd get like, uh, well, you know, we love change. We're all about change. No, no. What model do you use? You'd get mumbo jumbo from almost all of them. And then it, it, the ones that could answer it, if you said, okay, what are the four models? Cause all of it's sort of a tautology, right? All change falls into some variant of these, these four. The real trick is making sure your team understands what model you're using and, and you have that data and you say, look, we're using the intervention model because it works all the time. And one of the keys to intervention is you continually tell people, look, we're all in the boat. We're all rowing Northwest. This is why we're going Northwest. I want to remind you why that's a good idea and let's get going. And the other thing about the intervention model is there's a, there's a period of analysis. Right. I mean, we're going to we're going to just pull in data from everybody, but then we're going to say this is the way we're going and we're going. And after that, there's no debate. You're in the boat rowing. Right. And if you use a an edict model, people will resent that. And though you'll have people in the back of the boat going, well, I'm not rowing. I didn't vote for that. The persuasion model, what happens is even worse. People will come up with other clever opinions later and they may make micro sense and they'll go, oh yeah, let's go back and debate that and discuss that, and do more analysis. Meanwhile, the intervention boat is rowing, right? And they're going. Yeah. And so there's two, actually, there's a typo in here. It's, uh, it, it should be participation. Yeah. Participation is the, oh, we're running short on the fourth one. But yeah, but yeah, it's, uh, this is sort of new news to a lot of people who I've never thought about that. Just telling people the model you use that once we've decided, I don't care how you feel. We're all getting in the boat. And I'm going to remind you, this is why we're doing this and why it's important, but let's go. Absolutely. Well, Toby, that's a great place to, to end in terms of things. I want to thank you for participating in this. It's great to have somebody who understands both the technology and the organizational implications. I'm going to give you a quick rest of the story here. So the rest of the story here is, I don't know if you, anyone knew about where Kingsford charcoal came from. But it actually was a cousin of Henry Ford. Henry Ford was worried about all the wood that he was wasting as he was building. It was the Model A, had the first wood in it. He said, can't we do something with this? And he got together with Kingsford and they figured out a way to turn that wasted wood into, uh, put it in a kiln and turn it into charcoal briquettes. So the creativity of Henry Ford continues to amaze me. And I hope that that is useful to you at some cocktail party. That's it for this episode. For more ideas on how to be a growth innovator in your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on Spotify, iTunes, or whichever platform you use. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.